Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. sense because we're just pray without ceasing but for this moment is everybody okay with that that we're ready to move on all right good well glad you're here tonight um want to talk about uh, the bible a little bit which you would expect but in a particular way the bible gives us a framework for how we live faith and what that looks like it tells us what we believe and how we should live and uh, this has been uh, on my mind because of a couple conversations that I've had recently that were disconnected. The only connection was that they, they happened to me. And uh, first was with Joe. We were, we were I'm going to be telling some Peru stories for a couple weeks now. I'm trying, I got to get it out of my system a little bit. So I hope you'll tolerate that and not get annoyed. But we were, we were, me and Joe were rooming together and he was talking about uh, a book that he was reading for school. Um, that was concerned with Christians not learning to think biblically. And so he was telling me a little bit about what he was reading. And uh, he said that they found that when Christians don't um, have a biblical worldview, a biblical way of thinking, that they, they start to, it, it starts to lead to defective doctrine, um, compromised character, and a weak witness. And so um, you may get a lot of people in church, but if you don't have biblical teaching that follows that, then people become very shallow, and the church is anemic. It's not what it should be. And so he was telling me a little bit about that. And so then a couple weeks later, I met another guy uh, in Peru who works in a seminary in Lima. And so, uh, you know, seminaries are like graduate schools for those who are going into ministry. And so he was telling me... um, he was telling me that many pastors in Peru are poorly educated, and and this has led to a lot of wrong beliefs in many churches. This, these are these are this is what he was saying. He he also told me that Pentecostals don't have a good reputation for how they handle the Bible there, and that's probably true in the U.S. too. Is that Pentecostals don't have a good reputation for handling Scripture well, and so that's that's sad and. It makes me want to be, um, you know, follow Second Timothy two fifteen, where it says, "Study to show yourself approved, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth." We want to, we want to do that. We need to do that as Christians as well. And so uh, those things were kind of swirling around in my mind, and and it led me to think about uh, two things that I think we should keep in mind as we as we uh, live our Christian life and and we take time to study or not study. We should keep these things in mind. And the first is what happens when people forget the Bible. We need to keep this in mind. When people forget the Bible, there's two results of that. One is that there's backsliding. When people don't uh, have a firm grasp on Scripture, they backslide. And it's hard to tell which comes first, the heart moving away from God and therefore a neglect of Scripture, or a neglect of Scripture and therefore a lack of a heart for God. But it leads to backsliding. You can see it in the book of Judges. You can see it. Um, in the place in Scripture that says, where there's no vision, the people perish. Sometimes I've heard that preached like you need to have this prophetic vision. But really what that's talking about is where there is no prophetic voice, where there's no word of God being proclaimed, people run amok. They, they live in wild ways. They disconnect themselves from godly ways of living and live ways that are contrary to that. So that, that's the first thing is backsliding. And then the second result of people forgetting the Bible is heresy. They don't know what they believe. And if you're not familiar with heresy, heresies are beliefs that are different and contrary to what's been revealed. Okay, so heresy is something that is different from how God has revealed himself. It's something that's different and changed. And uh, so people have believed different things. And one of the examples I think of is in the book of Judges. Do you remember that there's a guy who found a priest and he decided to hire him as his own personal priest. Remember that in the book of Judges? And then he melted down some silver that his mom gave him and created this idol. And he made his own little religion. And if he had known Scripture, he never would have... This was an Israelite. He never would have done that. But he didn't know Scripture. And so it led to 
uh, a heresy, and he began to think that this idol could somehow represent a god or be a god, and he bowed down and worshipped that. Now, heresies sometimes can exist within the church, and the church still remain a true church. Okay, so what I mean by that is that there are sometimes there are variant beliefs that are unbiblical beliefs and either even counter-biblical, but the church is essentially trusting in Jesus and so and, and solely in Jesus, and so they're right in that sense and they're saved, but in another sense they're off base. Okay? Do you realize none of us is perfect in our grasp of the truth? And so there's some areas in our life where if we could look at it from God's view, we would be wrong. Do you agree? Okay, I know we're hesitant to say that, and especially if we've got people next to us that we're married to, right? You don't want to admit you could be wrong. So <laughs> I just, I'm saying that there are things that are like that, but then there are things that are heresies that change the, uh, the gospel fundamentally and cause those who believe them to be outside of the church. And I would put uh, two modern heresies in that area as Mormonism and the other is Arianism, but we know it as Jehovah Witnesses. So um, they change fundamentally something in the gospel so that that belief no longer allows them to be Christian because they're not trusting in Christ alone for salvation. They're trusting in Christ and works, or they have a distorted view of who Christ is. And so these things happen when we, we don't allow Scripture to have the place that it should have in our lives. The second thing I want you to remember is what happens when people remember the Bible. So the first is what happens when people forget it, but the second is remember what happens when people recall or remember the Bible. Uh, One example of this is um, when the people of Israel come back from captivity, the the people of Judah, and they they stand as... uh, Ezra reads the law, and then it's, it's translated through all the different people who are translating it from Hebrew into, into Aramaic, and they're hearing the law, and, and uh, they're responding to it. And so something's taking place there, and you can probably remember Josiah when, when he decided he got a renewed interest in the temple, and he said, let's go clean it out, and they, they found the book of the law there, and they had it read, and, and he began to weep and mourn because they realized they had broken the law, and and so something took place within that. And I think these two things happen when people remember the Bible. They return to the Bible. The first is revival, and the second is reformation. And these two things sound like they might be linked, and they are, but it's kind of nuanced. So when we talk about revival, we uh, are talking about the more immediate that is characterized by beginning to take seriously the things of the Lord. We're not just kind of playing the spiritual game anymore when revival happens. New life comes up within us and we're deeply committed, and we're willing to change. Okay, so that's kind of an immediate thing that can take place when we remember the Word of God, okay? And and once again, it's hard to know, is it revival starting, and then we take the Bible seriously, or is it we start taking the Bible seriously, and then revival happens? I think you can find both, okay? But the second is reformation, okay? So while revival is more immediate, the Reformation that takes place, and I don't mean Reformation with a capital R, I mean more of a, a reform that takes place within lives, it's more lasting in its effect upon the church as it returns to the biblical way. And then there's blessing, there's change in the church, there's change in the home, there's change in society, all as a result of there being, first of all, revival. Okay? I think revival leads ultimately to Reformation. Okay? Reformation is a change in overall society, okay? So we need, to, we need to take seriously the Word of God. Do you agree? Okay, we have one vote for that. I think we are all voting in our hearts, but I think we understand the significance of the Word of God. I think we should be concerned with separating faith from Scripture, okay? We should be deeply concerned about that. Uh, why I think this is happening more and more is that people are trying to live the Christian life and they're not biblical. They don't read their Bibles. They don't care to listen to the Bible. They're not interested in the Bible, but they still want to be Christian, okay? And that can happen, uh, but for how long? Why do people, and I've noticed this, I think, in the almost 30 years now that I've been in ministry, is that a lot of people are moving away from Scripture and more towards 
experience or whatever. And I think that there's some reasons for that. Let me mention six of them. Six because it's the number of a man, right? Six reasons why I think people are moving away. The first one is that people have a wrong view about how Scripture works. People have a wrong view about how Scripture works. They think that it's a maybe a magic book, like a magic eight ball that you you say um, what you need, and then you plop the Bible open to wherever and point, and then there's going to be an answer there for you in it. Now, if that's worked for you in the past, I want you to know we don't have any examples in Scripture of that being the way that Scripture should work. Okay, That's a really dangerous way to go about things. What if, you're, uh, what if you're, your finger lands on the Scripture that talks about Judas hanging himself? Uh, that's not great advice. And, and it's, as a matter of fact, uh, one author tells about a guy who knew who was considering uh, whether he should marry his fiance or marry this girl that he was dating or not. And he prayed about it and decided to play roulette with the Bible and plopped open the Bible into that place where it says, uh, Jesus tells Judas, uh, what you must do, go do quickly. And uh, he takes that as advice for, for whether he should marry. That's not, it's not great. That's not a great way to handle Scripture, I want to tell you. So there's wrong views about how Scripture works, and that has caused a lot of people um, I think to turn away from Scripture. Uh, second is that I think one reason, another reason that we're spoiled or we're not turning to Scripture is we're spoiled in our appetites um, for spiritual meat, that we don't, we, we gorge ourselves on so much entertainment, so much easy to get low-hanging fruit in terms of what we do with our minds that we don't want to work through difficult things in Scripture. Do you know, the message of Scripture is easy, but there are places in Scripture where God has revealed Himself, and you have to work at getting it. Okay, So when it says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, Paul is writing to Timothy, he says, uh, the King James says, study to show yourself approved. The Greek word there is spudazo, and it means it just means to work hard or run after in an intense way. Uh, work hard to show yourself approved. A workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing word of truth. I want you to know that he's calling the person who's studying the Bible a workman. That means that we don't just get these things serendipitously. Like we open the Bible and then it just plops into our heart. Sometimes God speaks to us in ways that that it's just like the channels of heaven are open and he's revealing things to us. And other things, and I'm, I'm telling you this as, as somebody who my weekly task involves Bible study every week, Okay that sometimes you work for those things, and when you work for it and God opens your eyes to what's there, it's so rewarding, okay? There's work, and there is God illuminating our hearts simultaneously. Sometimes it feels less like work, and sometimes it feels more like work. But we, if we get spoiled appetites where, you know, entertainment requires very little of our minds. As, fa- as a matter of fact, I was telling uh, Joe yesterday, he interviewed me for a class because he had to interview some great person. No. He had to interview a pa- his pastor, and he asked me uh, a little bit about how you how I um, find time to relax and stuff. And what I like to do, I like to turn the TV on and shut my mind off. And I, I just do that because it's so easy. You don't have to do anything. It's all done for you. Okay. And and so that there's the, that can be fine in its way, but. If we allow that to spoil the rest of what we do, that's dangerous. Because if we think that everything is going to come to us that easy, um, we've got another thing coming. And so I think some people have spoiled their appetite for Scripture because uh, it's like eating candy before dinner. Okay. And then the third thing I think is attention spans have been diminished. That a lot of people don't have an attention span to endure reading through a book like Romans. So that's that takes thought. It takes pulling out a piece of paper and a pencil and writing down thoughts as you go along. And oftentimes we have diminished attention spans, and increasingly so. Like, you know, long like they now call movies long form entertainment. Do you know that long form entertainment? Like, you can't have something that's that long. Some of our kids are saying, like, I can't sit through a whole movie. We've got to watch 30-second TikTok videos or whatever, and that's the kind of entertainment. So no wonder attention spans are being spoiled by all of that. And 
um, I think in some ways that's robbing us of the Bible. Uh, fourth thing is that personal truth is preferred to revealed truth. Okay? And some people don't study Scripture because they prefer their own truth, like this is my truth, and, and not so concerned with what's God's truth. Oftentimes with what we think of as our truth, we can feel it. It's deep down in our bones. It's emotional. It's how we perceive things. But when something else comes in, and C.S. Lewis talks about this, I think maybe in The Weight of Glory, some essay where he says some things that are true that are revealed to us, we shouldn't be surprised if we don't naturally find them appealing to us because we're being spoken to from heaven with something that we don't have an analogy for in this life. So that's a challenge at times because what God is offering us is something that's not true uh, not true in our experience yet, okay? He's calling us forth in faith. Trust trust me, and I'll get you there. You may not feel it beforehand, but he's, he's calling us out to trust him and to step out, and then we'll receive the fullness of what that is, okay? And it, 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 can you relate to that? Like somebody tells you it'd be really great to go on a mission trip, and you're like, I don't, I don't want to do that, I'm thinking about this um, right now, but uh, once you go, or you need to uh, go to this restaurant. Well, I don't need to go there. And then you go, and you're like raving about it. You know, it's the experience of it, but you had to trust the word before you could experience the fullness of what it what it is. Well, you can't get there if you're believing your truth over a revealed truth. Okay. And then fifth, fifth reason why more and more people are divorcing the Bible from their Christian life is. They've made this false disjunction between word and spirit. And let me explain what I mean by that is that somehow people have pitted the spirit of God against the word of God as if these two are contrary to one another. Okay? And the, the verse that they would use is, um, oh, now I'm having trouble thinking of it. The, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Okay, have you heard that verse before? Okay. Do you know that's not talking about the revealed word? That's talking about the letter of the law cannot bring life like Jesus can. Okay. But that's not suggesting that somehow the Spirit of God and the Scriptures are contrary to one another. And so there's this, this false disjunctive between those two, that these are not working together. And the truth of the matter is, is that the Spirit has inspired the Word, and so He speaks through the Word, and we need to accept that both of these things, one being a thing and the other a person, are working toward the same goal. And then the sixth reason is there's, uh, for many people, a sole reliance on others rather than investigating themselves. So some people, they rely upon a preacher or a teacher or YouTube or whatever to tell them what the Bible says, and they don't discover for themselves what it says. And what that does is it leaves us vulnerable to bad teaching. Okay, You have to be willing to search out the Scriptures. It's one of the things that the Reformers, and now we're talking Reformation with capital R, that they saw was important is that if we're going to get out from under being misled by popish religion or other false religion, then we each need to understand Scripture for ourselves. Otherwise, we're vulnerable. So it's the theme of being a um, Reformed or Protestant Christian is that we, we recognize the value of the Word of God. So I said a moment ago that I had those two conversations that brought up this concern, and both of them uh, tied into something that I was reading myself about Bible reading, and it has to do with how how we read the Bible. And I want to talk about that now, so we're we're shifting a little bit away from, okay, the Bible is really important. But now to, okay, we want to read the Bible. What do we what do we do with that? How do we how do we go about that? And I would suggest to you, uh, just as a starter, and I'll mention this in a moment, is that the first thing we need to do is we just simply need to read it. Okay, we need to read the Bible. I think nobody uh, would say, could say, I read the Bible enough. Okay, we need to, we need the Bible. We need to read the Bible and hear this is God's communication to us. And so, um, how do we go about reading the Bible? In some cases. The Bible is kept around, but it's treated like that magic eight ball um, where we just kind of ask the question and then shake it up and open it and find the verse that speaks to that situation. And if that's work, maybe God's been gracious to us, but it's really not the way he intends for us to deal with Scripture. So that's what I'd like to talk about tonight. And, and the thing that I'd like to highlight is 
context. Okay, so is that on the screen? Okay, good. Okay, context. It's uh, from Latin. Contextus means connection of words. Connection of words. Doesn't that make great sense? And then it's related to another word, uh, context there, which means to weave together. Um, so we have here in this a description and a metaphor. A description and a metaphor. The description is of words being woven together. That we don't get the Bible in just a single word, but it's words connected together, and it's connected together in a certain arrangement. Like there's a there's a syntax, which is the arrangement of our words, and there's connection in larger ways, grammatical to paragraphs and beyond that. And it gets real nerdy if you think about it, but we can't communicate without that kind of structure. We have to have an agreed-upon structure. If I just uh, jumbled up a bunch of words, if I had little um, dice with words on it, and I jumbled them up and threw them on the floor in any particular order, it wouldn't mean anything. Okay, there has to be an arrangement. So this is how language works. And God chose to reveal himself through language primarily and not through pictures. Do you agree? Okay, think about this. You shall not make into you any graven images. Okay, so there is in some sense a prohibition on images, but the way God communicates is through words. He's chosen to do it that way, and it's through language, and it's not by us just taking whatever we want to get out of it. It's trying to understand what it means in its context. And so we have this rich tapestry of words working together. This is from one of the villages that we built a church in, Anise. This is a courtesy Anise Oates. She took this picture and used, and used by her permission tonight. It's a lady weaving her dress. They had these, the Shawi people had this uh, particular dress that was made out of this material, and somehow Anise got into her home. I don't think she snuck in or broke in, but she got in there and she saw this lady was weaving uh, a skirt. And so you can see the different threads that are there. And all of them go together to make a tapestry. One of them by themselves is not a dress. It all has to go together. And I think you can see the picture of a tapestry that's here in this, is that Scripture's a tapestry, and that it makes sense as it's all put together. And the thing that we need to keep in mind is that Jesus believed this. Remember when he was talking to the uh, two on the road to Emmaus, that he unfolded to them the scriptures, starting with the law and the prophets. And he went all the way through and preached and told them about why Messiah must uh, suffer and die and, and raise, be raised from the dead. He, he's laying that all out. He believed that scripture was cohesive. It all went together. We need to, I think we need to buy into that concept that the Bible is not a random selection of verses that are like magical statements, but there's a coherence to it. And, uh, and, and so the meaning of the Bible is not determined by a word or even a verse. We need the words around it to understand what's being said. And I don't believe that the Bible means whatever we want it to mean either, that it means what God intended it to mean, and it stays fixed to that meaning. Uh, but we have to understand that meaning in context. So there's a, a book come back to that in just a second. But there's, a, there's this book by Andrew Nacelli uh, called How to Interpret and Apply the New Testament. And he was talking about uh, this calendar that he saw that had Bible verses on it. Did anybody have in their home back in the 80s or the 70s that loaf of bread with little cards of Scripture? Okay, you know what I'm talking about? You still have it? You should bring it to, ch- you should bring it to church sometime. We could all be show and tell. But uh, we had that in our home, and this must have been something like that, although I don't remember that whole thing with the loaf of bread being far off. But uh, Nacelli was talking about how uh, he saw this frilly day calendar that included flowery Bible verses on it for each day of the year. And so when the day passed, you turn the page and rip it off and throw that piece of Scripture away, I guess. I don't know. Uh, and then the next day, there's a new verse up there, and it's got flowers and stuff around it. And he said, I noticed that one of the verses that was in this fancy cursive text said this, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me, as if it's an inspirational quote. Anybody know who said that? 
Satan said that. Somebody took that right out of context and said, this sounds good. Spiritual inspiration. Put it on the calendar. And uh, so you have to pay attention to context because the context is that's Satan telling Jesus, bow down and worship me and I'll give you, you know, all your wildest dreams will come true and all of that. So you can get into trouble when reading um, Scripture if you don't read beyond the verse, that we have to understand it in context. And Job is a, a particular challenge because if you read most of Job, it's the opinions of his friends. If you plop in anywhere in Job and just go, that sounds really good, you might be reading one of the three friends or four friends that are addressing Job, and then you get to, I think it's chapter 42, verse 7, where it, it, God rebukes the friends and says, what you've said concerning me is not right. It's like everything has just now been erased that we thought was great. Okay, So we have to pay close attention to context, and it's good to take in all of Scripture. One of the things that's been a challenge for this, I'm going to skip past this and take a look here. at um, This is the NASB. Okay, So... What you'll notice about the NASB is that it sets apart every verse in its own verse. And that might not sound too bad. We've seen a lot of Bibles that way. Uh, KJV is that way. Um, Do you know when the New Testament was written, it was written in what's called uncials, which is capital letters, all Greek capital letters. They didn't have any spaces between the words. They didn't have paragraph divisions. If they came to the end of the line and there was no room for the the rest of the word, they just wrapped it around the end, and started again. And so what you were looking at is a page full of text. No breaks, nothing. And so you had to follow along, and it was really hard to read something like that and just figure out what these words were and how they all went together. And that created a challenge is that it's hard to read that. But the other thing that creates a challenge for us is when we think that each of these verses is its own thing. Okay, And so what I want to encourage you in, I'll mention a few practical things here at the end, is that you find a Bible that is divided into paragraphs, okay? And if you like the King James Version, it's usually in uh, this kind of arrangement, but you can find it in a paragraph version. And here's the other thing that you might notice is that a lot of times if Bibles are uh, put up this way, that there are bold numbers on some of them, okay? Well, I thought maybe I could zoom in here, maybe not. Okay, you see 18 bold, you see 6 bolded, 13's bolded. And what that bold letter or number means is that's the beginning of a new paragraph. And so I want to encourage you as you read through the Bible, read from bold to bold. Okay, and that helps you to get a paragraph context even if the the verses are are set apart like this. Okay, so we can get into trouble if we don't read things in in context. And so let me deal with a verse that we often... Uh, here, I think, used out of context. And why don't you turn in your Bible with me to Philippians 4. Philippians 4. Okay? You you know where I'm going, don't you? Some of you know where I'm going on this. Philippians 4, verse 10 and following. Anybody know the context of Philippians? What's going on with Paul? He's in prison. There's four letters that are known as the prison epistles that are considered written from either Ephesus or Rome, I think Rome. And Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel. Um, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. that He's written from prison. And so while he's in chains, he continues to exercise influence over the church by writing letters. But it's not like um, our present day prison system with as bad as it is with... Uh, you know, human rights and making sure that there's justice and all of that. If you didn't, this is one of the reasons for the statement Jesus made, you visited me while I was in prison, is because if you didn't have a friend to bring you food, you would starve to death. Because they didn't provide food. The Roman Empire didn't provide food for its prisoners. You better have somebody on the outside that cares enough about you to bring you food. Apparently, Paul had people like that. And the Philippians were some of those people that Paul at times didn't have a lot to eat. At other times, he had plenty because he'd been resourced. And so this uh, passage deals with one of the verses that often people take out of context. Look at verse 10 with me, and we'll just read this whole paragraph. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. 
Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned uh, to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it means to be in need, and I know what it means to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every, each and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Okay, the, What's the topic of this paragraph after having read that? Food, the need for food or supply or resource. What's Paul say about his own attitude towards all of it? He's content, right? He's able to be content. What is it that that last verse is dealing with then? Is this just a, oftentimes people kind of pick this up out of the context and apply it. I've seen it on uh, the robe of boxers. Uh, I've seen it on the face of football players. I've seen it on the shoes of basketball players. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. And so it's inspirational, no doubt, and an encouragement to many people. But what's wrong with that context? What's wrong with using it in that way? I think uh, it's taken out of context and it's repurposed to mean anything we want it to when we use it that way. Anything I want to achieve, Christ will give me strength to do it. Anything I want to do, any plans I have, Christ's strength is there for that. Okay, that's the way that it's often took, uh, taken. And th- there's part of this that is right. The part that's right is that Christ has the strength to help us through anything. Okay, that's right. That's right, no matter what. But um, it's a matter of what the strength is given to. Is it to my goals and my success, my dreams and my wants, or is it to God helping me to fulfill his vision for my life. Okay, which one? Because I think what a lot of people do is they say, this is what I want for my life, and I'm claiming this promise for me. Okay, so what I want, Christ is going to give me strength to accomplish that. Is that what this is talking about? I think if we look at the context, we have to pause. I should also mention that this isn't exactly a promise. Promise is... This is what God will do for you. What does Paul say here? I I found strength in Christ for all things that I need to endure. Okay? And so Paul is telling us how Christ has helped him. And we can we can learn from Paul and we can realize that uh what we when we are in a similar situation, God can help us too. But there's a lot that's taken for granted. Paul, for example, is in bad circumstances. He's not getting ready. He's not at the free throw line getting ready to shoot a championship winning free throw. And therefore, you know, he can count on Christ to give him strength to make that shot. I don't know that that's so important as what Paul's going through, which he's in a bad situation and he's encouraging a church that's in suffering situations too. And so he's saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which takes on the flavor of I can endure all things. I can be content through all things because Christ strengthens me with contentment. Okay? And that's really uh, a rich understanding of what this passage is about. I don't know of any place in Scripture where God's strength is promised carte blanche to anyone, no matter what they do. Do you know of any place like that where God just says, I'm just going to give you strength for whatever you want to do? What about, what about Saul? Remember what God said to Saul through Samuel when... Um, he was first called to be king. Saul said this to Samuel. He said, "Do whatever, after the Spirit of the Lord comes upon you, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. And Sunday morning I was saying that uh, when God says, I'm with you, it's more than just his, his proximity in terms of presence. It's his help. Okay? So when he says, I'm with you, he's saying, I'm here in a way to help you. Whatever your hand finds to do... Uh, God is with you. Do it with all of your strength, for God is with you. Does this mean that Saul can do anything in God's strength? Does this mean that God is going to strengthen Saul to hunt down David and kill him? I hope not. So what I'm saying, what I'm trying to say is that there is a promise of strength, but it's limited to the purposes that God has for us. And not, not that his strength is limited, but the giving of it may be limited, where God says, I'm not going, I'm going to unplug you from the power 
if you start to do your own thing. But I'll give you the strength you need to do my will all day long. But the moment you get out on your own, you're on your own, buddy. And you can do it in your own strength. But if you'll trust your life to him, he'll help you. So then the question is, can we use, is the all things include sin? Like we can get really good at sin by relying upon the strength God gives? God forbid, right? What about, um, well, even Jesus refused to use his miraculous powers for personal gain. That temptation when Satan took him up to the pinnacle of the temple. I, I wonder if we understand the significance of that. The context of that is the pinnacle of the temple is a very prominent place with a square below where everybody could have seen him. And Satan quoted this. He said, doesn't the scripture say that the angels will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone? Quoted scripture to him. But it was out of context and it was out of proper application. And Jesus refused to jump down from the temple and let God rescue him in order to make a name for himself. He could have done that, could have done it to his own advantage, but instead he chose the, the harder way, okay? Um, Satan offering all the kingdoms of the world to him, if you bow down and worship me. It's like offering, it's like Satan was offering him a shortcut to bypassing the cross to the cross's goal. The cross's goal is to bring all kingdoms under subjection to Jesus. Did you know that? That he, he will do that. Satan is tempting him with the very purpose for which Christ came. And he refuses to shortcut that by compromise. So even Jesus refused to use his miraculous power for personal gain. So what is the verse actually saying? Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ, or I can do this through Christ who gives me strength. Um. When we interpret it the wrong way, it takes away from what Paul is saying here. He faced the want and the plenty, and these were the consequences of doing God's will that he called him to. And sometimes that meant having more than he needed and sometimes having less. And now he tells us, all, everything that's led up to verse 13 is telling us he found the secret of contentment. The context here is that Christ gives strength that we can be content whatever the circumstances. Do you believe that? I think contentment is something that we in America, we have more probably than most people in the world, and we probably have less contentment. We have more in terms of substance, and we have less in terms of contentment. And so I think contentment, when we're discontent, it's a gripe against God's leadership. Like we don't trust His way of dealing with things. It doesn't mean that being content doesn't mean that we don't have desires. We can have desires, we can pray. God fulfill those. That That's different. But ultimately, contentment says, I've expressed my desires to you, and now I trust that into your hands. Okay? The strength then comes to be able to be content in whatever the circumstances are. And so this is a really powerful point that's being made here. It gets overlooked because the verse has been decontextualized. One of the hardest um, levels of adversity we face, I think, is not external circumstances, but it has to do with how we're going to respond. Okay? Like we can't choose all of the external circumstances, but anybody else find one of the hardest things you deal with is yourself? Isn't that true? I think it's true. Like it's the hardest thing for me to, like how I respond to people and what I'm going to do with circumstances that I don't like, you know, um, trying to achieve goals, that can be hard, but it's nothing like trying to conquer self. We need God's help for that, and he gives us strength to do that so that Paul could take on sitting in jail, not knowing the outcome. In Philippians, it kind of has a, a leaning towards he's going to survive this jail term, and he's not going to be martyred. Uh, but he's still a little bit unsure about what this is going to look like. And, and so in the middle of that, in prison, he wants to be out there preaching the gospel, he doesn't want to be locked away. Um, you know, it's been unfair. People have lied about him and mistreated him. And he's done all of this because all this happened to him because he did the right thing. Like, sometimes it's hard when you do the right thing and you suffer for it. So how's Paul going to deal with that? Christ is going to give him strength so he can be content. Whatever's happening, I'm trusting in Christ, okay? So now he's overcome the challenge that's within and that's one of the bigger challenges. And Christ has enough strength to overcome the challenges within. We ought to thank God for that.
So what do we, what do, we do about all of this? Well, um, we should know that being in God's will is something to rejoice about, but also it has its challenges. Okay, It does. It has challenges to it. Um, I think we have a misconception here, too, or some people do. I'm not you, you're all enlightened because you're here on Wednesday night, obviously. But some people have the idea that if you're in God's will, it's going to just go easy. And that's not true. Sometimes being in God's will creates new problems that we otherwise wouldn't have had. Let me just say this. It's hard if you're not in God's will, and it's going to be hard at times when you are in God's will. And so the difference is that when in God's will, you can rely on Him for His strength and help. But if you're not in God's will... Wow, what a hard life it is, isn't it? The way of the sinner is hard. Okay, so what should we do about it? Just understand that there's going to be challenges and that that doesn't necessarily mean you're out of God's will. Paul is not in prison because he got out of God's will. He's in prison because he's in the center of God's will. And he has to wrestle with all of that. John the Baptist, the same thing. Remember when he was thrown into prison, he sent somebody to talk to Jesus and say, are you the one that we're supposed to expect or should we look for another? Like, I didn't expect that it was going to go down like this. And Jesus responds, look, eyes have been opened, the, the, the deaf hear, the lame walk. The kingdom of God's come, and blessed are those who are not offended in me. Okay, so don't be offended if following Christ at times allows hardship in your life because God's going to use that too for his glory. Second thing is we should understand that Christ will help us through uh, the accomplishing of his will for us, not uh, our will for ourselves. This is never about us being great, but uh, being sufficiently supplied to handle everything that comes our way. Jesus knew the importance of context, and Paul understands the importance of context. As you read through Scripture, one thing I I would encourage you to keep in mind is um, understand, like, how all of these things work together, okay? When you read... um, a book, for example, a book of the Bible, it's good at times to read the whole thing through so we understand that there's a flow of thought. I never knew this when I was growing up. I thought the Bible was a bunch of verses. And then I went to Bible school, and I, we started reading through the letters of Paul, and I realized verse one, chapter 1, verse 1 is connected to chapter 16, verse 9. All the way through, there's a connection. It's coherent. It's a tapestry. It's a rich tapestry. And not only that, Romans is connected to Genesis. Right? And Revelation is connected to Matthew, and you can figure out all of those inner workings together, but it's, it's God's revelation, and it's woven together. And it's important that we understand that. Let me point out uh, four things here that can help us out in terms of practical application, and then we'll be done. First of all is I would encourage you to read the Bible through that you live in the larger context of Scripture. In other words... Um, Start with Genesis 1, and even better than that would be to find a chronological Bible and read it that way, okay? So that you're following the flow of redemption history from start to its culmination in the book of Revelation, okay? You'll live within the Bible. This is, this is something, I, I read a book recently on, uh, called Atomic Habits. Anybody heard of that? Atomic Habits, and it's about uh, you make little increases every day, and over a year, it accumulates big time. It, it multiplies. And so the author, and I can't think of his name at the moment, but he is talking about this. If you apply this to Scripture, you understand that when you read a little bit every day, it keeps that story in your mind through particular days, and you remember what's happened before. And you can really grow Bible knowledge by just being consistent every day. Read a little bit every day. Okay? Read the Bible through, live in that larger context. If, uh, you know, you're worried about studying and getting in depth, the best thing that you can do for that, read through, okay? Second is read a book in a setting or listen to it in one setting. That sounds like a big deal, doesn't it? Did you know, how many books in the Bible are there? 66. Did you know 33 of them are 30 minutes or less if you read them all the way through? 33 of them, half of them, take 30 minutes or less to read all the way through. The longest book in the Bible in terms of time to read is Psalms. It takes five and a half hours. Um, I dare you. I dare you to do that. 
get up every once in a while, stretch those legs. You don't want deep vein thrombosis. But uh, five hours, five and a half hours. The shortest book in the Bible, Second John, two minutes. You can read it in two minutes. So you could read through whole books, and then you can get the whole gist of the argument. What is going on? Because many times uh, a writer, especially in the letters, is building one statement upon the next, or the statement that follows is built upon the previous one. And so there's this chain that goes all the way through. And in order to understand one scripture, you need to understand the whole letter. And so read through it. Okay, uh, Read in paragraph Bibles. Okay, There are... As I mentioned, um, KJV Bibles that are in paragraph form you can buy on Amazon. Uh, even the NAS that's kind of formatted the same way as the King James Version, you can find it in paragraphs. And the reason for that is that thoughts develop in paragraphs. Not not every book has that. Like in Hebrew poetry, uh, it's not in paragraph form. But if, if you're reading uh, letters, like the like the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, you're going to find that there's paragraphs in there. There's paragraphs within the Gospels, within Genesis, all of that. It's the poetry that kind of stands out. But find a paragraph Bible. I'd encourage that. Even if your favorite translation is one that doesn't normally format it that way, you can find those. And then uh, here's another one. You probably have to find a special Bible for that. And they have it for the NIV and the ESV at least. There are Bibles out there that are without chapter and verse. And the benefit of that is that you're reading it the way that it was originally written. There was no chapter and verse. Chapters didn't come until the 12th century in the Bible. So they're not inspired. They're a later edition. Sometimes they're unfortunate because they break it in the wrong spot. And so if that's the case, you're not getting a complete thought. If you read a chapter a day, like you read Acts chapter 4 and you don't read Acts chapter 5 that same day, you're missing something because it turns the corner in that context. You need all of that. And uh, verses didn't come into play until 1550. And so we're talking about three-quarters of the church history without verses, verse numberings. Verses were there. Let me be clear. Verses were there. Verse numberings were not there until 1550. And so well, when we see the chapter and verses it's not exactly how the uh, Scripture was given to us. And so I would encourage you to read that. But the main thing to take from this is read the Bible in context. And if you come across a troubling passage, read the verses around it. Here's a, a diagram that we can close with here. Okay, so you have a passage, and then you have the immediate context. Okay, so if, say you're in the Gospels. You've got a little short section of five verses maybe. Read all of that. Don't just take one verse out of that. Read the whole thing. Um, and then the immediate context would be a little bit larger circle, a bigger portion of Scripture, and then sections of Scripture, which are the major divisions of a book. Read that section. And then if you need to, read that whole book. I feel like this is a little bit backward. And then all the books by the same author, and then all the books in one testament. Okay, it takes about 18 to 21 hours to read the New Testament. So I dare you, I dare you to do that, too. Um, a Bible readathon, right? And then uh, the whole Bible. And I, I think in some ways, if you start with the passage, this is a little bit backwards. It seems better to me to start from general and work down to specific, but um, that's hard to do when you're reading through a passage and come to a question. So just realize that these are all connected through context. Any thoughts or questions before we conclude? Dean? And I understand that um, either version or Bible Gateway has that option, too, that you can do it with just about any translation, turn all that stuff off. And you're hearing, I'm hearing more and more Bible scholars who are saying, um, they're touting the virtue of that, that saying, shut, shut all that off, and you can really get into the text. Sometimes that other stuff is distraction. So it's a good point. Any, anything else? Any questions or comments? Yeah, Miss Evelyn. There's a, there's a lot of good reading plans out there that help you to get through that. And if you make an adjustment, like you miss a day or whatever, don't beat yourself up. You can, you can. Yeah, I view it this way, that when you read the Bible, it's like visiting a, a foreign country 
And whenever you do that, you come back to the land you live in changed by it. Your mind is changed. You see things differently. The Bible is a different culture. There's a different culture there, and you have to go discover. There's a different language, a different ethic, a different worldview. That God is at the center of that, the, that world. And he is of ours too, but we don't see it because our eyes are closed to it often. It is. And I think, I think God's given us imagination. Imagination sometimes is a bad word to Christians, but it's, God gave us imagination not so that we could come up with evil schemes, but so that we could relate to other people and we could get into his word and understand it. So it's the best use we can have for imagination is to get into the word of God, put ourselves there as participants, not in a weird way, but as maybe an observer more than anything, and we can glean from that. So, all right. Any other questions? We're out of time. Comments? Okay. Hey, thanks for your attention tonight. Let's stand. So we pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this word. And we just ask, Lord, you give us strength to be content in whatever our circumstances are, knowing that you're at the helm and knowing, Lord, that um, we can trust you to uh, help us through, whether it's in much or in little. And we, we praise you for that. We ask that you help us to have a hunger for the word, that you give our appetite, this, uh, just increase our appetite for the word of God. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to be people of the scripture and people of the spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.